Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Hope everyone's doing well, staying safe and healthy. Today's episode of Monday Match Analysis is a conversation with Jeff Salzenstein. I enjoyed it as always. This was uh, scheduled a while back. We were planning on going over the Sunshine Double. Today would have been the Monday after the Miami Open Final. Uh, but instead, we discussed things like what players are doing at home uh, to stay sharp and to stay fit in the uh, in the age of the coronavirus. We also discussed tennis's political structure, and uh, I can't tell you we came up with that many brilliant ideas, but we certainly came up with a lot of uh, a lot of problems because there are a lot of problems, and uh, arguably this time is shining a light on those problems more than ever. We end with the conversation about the modernization of tennis, sticking with the theme of going back and watching old matches. Uh, we talk a little bit about why Jeff thinks that players are so much worse at volleying nowadays, and uh, if that is for the best, or if uh, maybe we'll, we'll get a resurgence at some point of, of net play at the highest level. So a lot of good stuff in here. Um, enjoyed it as always. You can check out Jeff's stuff. Um, a link to Tennis Evolution will be left in the description. Without further ado, Jeff Salzenstein. We're joined once again by Jeff Salzenstein, the founder of Tennis Evolution, former top 100 pro, a very close friend of the program. Jeff, first of all, uh, how are you doing right now? How is the, the quarantine and, and all that? Well, uh, thank you for having me again. We, we were going to be talking about the, the Miami Open and, of course, Indian Wells a few weeks prior. So we have a much di different conversation, but I'm doing well. Uh, I live in downtown Denver and a couple weeks ago uh, when, when Colorado was probably not quite as fast as California and New York, but we were pretty early in this shelter-at-home process uh, I decided I didn't want to be downtown. So I moved to the suburbs. I'm with my girlfriend. We haven't seen a soul except for my parents. We stay six feet away from them. But uh, we've done a really good job of, of isolating and taking care of ourselves. Uh, I've really been thinking this whole time that I'm, I'm really glad that I live in a suburb and, and not in that urban environment so I can get outside. I can hit tennis balls against my garage and, and hope it doesn't break which uh, so far so good. The garage is still functioning, but I, I get a little worried about that. Um, but let's talk about, um, and I'm glad, glad to hear you're doing well. 
and uh, I can thankfully say the same so far. Uh, let's talk about ways that players are probably dealing with this and, mm. and how people are staying active and maintaining their responsibilities as a professional athlete, especially because this is a situation and we don't know how long this is going to carry on. So what do you think players are doing at home? Well, fortunately, in the day and age of social media, we can uh, see what everyone's doing. You've seen videos of Nadal, uh, you know, playing with, uh, pl you know, playing over a little net. You've seen uh, Djokovic with a, what, a pan or a pot or something. <laughs> Federer in the snow uh, hitting against the garage. Uh, I got a, a, a mess of a, a video yesterday from my father, who used to be a Division One player back in the day. He's in his 70s. He's out. He's out practicing tweener uh he's so bored he's on the court doing his tweener at 70 years old so that was pretty interesting <laughs> to see but I've got three clients that I'm pretty close to uh one is an ATP player uh in the ranked in the 400s really making a move right now as he's developed his serve uh he was in the gym until they closed the gym down he's got a body weight training program that he's that he's using um I've got a player that has a court in her backyard up in the mountains. Uh, she's with her family. Her mom is feeding her balls in the backyard. She's also going through this body weight program that I've given her uh, to help her with her strength and her mobility. And then I have a student or a client that I work with in the Bay Area who's a junior tennis player. Uh, she's doing Zoom calls with her strength and conditioning coach. So they're doing uh, they're doing strength and conditioning. We actually did a zoom call the other day where I took her through a shadow stroke routine. So she was out on her driveway. So, you know, we're just adjusting, we're adapting. I imagine many of the pros are doing similar to what I just mentioned. There's also a video up on your YouTube channel about exercises you can do to improve mobility. And all you need is a tennis ball or, or a baseball I've been using cause it's a little bit harder um, so I, I got to plug that link in the description, by the way, to Tennis Evolution. Um, so there are a lot of exercises, mobility-wise, that you can do without really any equipment. But I do think there probably is this, this gap that some of the more wealthy players, more successful players probably have. I'm, I'm guessing you're more likely to have a, a tennis court in your home if you are in, let's say, the top 30 versus if you're outside the top 100. So I'm wondering if when everyone comes back that the rich will have gotten richer per se mm -hmm. and the poor will have gotten poorer and that gap is going to be really pronounced. What do you think? Well, here's, here's what I think is happening. And I want to go back and, and piggyback uh, on your comment about the mobility in a moment. But your, your question about uh, the rich getting richer, when you were talking, the thought that I had was that a lot of the wealthy players, my guess is they don't have a court in their backyard. Maybe the wealthy junior tennis players, uh, but a pro player, the way that I envision is they, they keep their tennis, uh, they keep their home life at home, and then they would drive to a facility to do their work for five hours a day. Uh, I do know that there's a lot of pros uh, fudging this, you know, social isolation thing. I, I shouldn't say a lot. I know that there are some uh, where they're still training with their coach. They're still working out. They're still playing tennis at courts where that they can, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a backyard court of a wealthy person, an individual that they know. I've heard stories about that. So um, I think whether you're a hundred in the world or you're 30 in the world, 
or 10 in the world, as long as you have a connection to a private court, uh, then you're going to be in good shape. Um, I think this is a real opportunity for people getting back to your original comment about the mobility. There are certain people, uh, pro players right now that are on TikTok and Instagram, just showing off their kitchen and showing off like their latest fashion wardrobe or just, you know, playing, uh, what, uh, what is it? I don't even know the games, the video games that they're playing, you know, NBA 4k or whatever it's called. 2k. 2k. See, I, 4k, 2k, 5g, 3 I don't even know, <laughs> but that just shows you how much I'm out of touch with that world. But this is a real opportunity for certain players. If they have the right strength and mobility program, for example, they're going to make a huge gain during this time. Again, I have a friend that's on the tour. He's got a program, I believe, that's top-notch to improve explosiveness, vertical jump. And you don't get that time when you're training three, four hours a day. So when you can have this full almost off-season that like the NBA players have and the NFL players have, I think there's going to be certain people that have the right program for them that are going to come out of the gates just flying because they're going to be more explosive and fresher and healthier on the court. I think the big question that everyone's asking is <clears throat> the most, the three most popular players in men's tennis right now, they're all well over 30 years old. So people are wondering how they're going to respond. And I guess the, the real crux of that question is what is aging? Is it, is it just biological that clock ticking because it's still ticking or is it the wear and tear on the practice courts and, and playing matches because if it's all about the wear and tear, then Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, they're not getting much older right now. But how do you look at that, right? Are they aging right now or are they continuing to preserve their time? That's a fantastic question. And only a guy as astute as you, Gil, would be able to come up with something like that. And I love it. And I actually think they're getting younger. So I think that, you know, Federer, I guess they're freezing the, the ranking point. So, I mean, it couldn't have worked out better for him with the knee surgery. Yep. You know, the more time he has, he can rest. Uh, I, I do not think the biological clock is taking effect as much as it is playing wear and tear. A guy like Djokovic, he's running so much side to side. Uh, I think this is perfect for them. And again, you know, you have to ask the question, why do players end up retiring? What's the reason they retire? Generally, usually it's a body part that gives out. You know, Leighton Hewitt with his big toe, you know, not that that gave out, but it certainly slowed the, the, the back end of his career. Andre Agassi could barely get out of bed in the morning. I know that um, James Blake was struggling with some issues. So as long as they have their – if they are getting – I don't even know if they're getting massages because they're probably – maybe they're not. If they can be doing the stretching and the mobility – the body can rejuvenate. If they're eating a clean diet, if they're sitting around eating junk food during this time, then they're aging. So it's much more about the epigenetics, which is your environment, than it is your actual genetics. So if they're doing high level stuff, if they're drinking their celery juice every day, and if they have their, their blood work all in order, and if they got their mobility down, they're, they're going to see the fountain of youth. Yeah. If, I were to, if I'm a betting man, I bet they hit the ground running big time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I tend to think that they're not that basically they're going to be doing all the right things uh, and their bodies are going to feel really, really good. 
And I also think that they are advantaged enough to have any kind of facilities and equipment. I mean, Nadal has a whole academy, for example. So Rafa Nadal can social distance with his family, and he's got this incredible state-of-the-art facility. We know uh, Djokovic at his home in Serbia, I believe, has courts with all three surfaces. And at his home? Yes. Okay. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, and we know we've seen Federer up in the Swiss Alps. It is snowing, but he seems to still be going out there and hitting the ball against the wall. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I think that the big three are not really aging right now. So I'm with you on that. Jeff, uh, it's been in the news. I guess the, the most recent phenomenon has been um, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, had a conference call with all of the leaders of every sport, which means the four major American sports, baseball, hockey, basketball, football, MMA was in there. So UFC, uh, Dana White was there. The president of the WWE was on the call, but no tennis. There was no tennis on the call. I don't know if that's going to have actual effects, but it was at least a symbolic wake-up call. What are your thoughts on tennis having no commissioner, no leader, no one to be on that call? Mm. Well, you're opening up the rabbit hole right now for me. I want to go, I, I could go down the rabbit hole, but I'll try to be as politically correct as possible. Listen, before coronavirus hit, I don't care what you say, tennis is struggling. Now, some would argue that, wait a minute, Jeff, how is it struggling? These guys are making more money than ever. But again, these are the chosen few. If you look at the landscape of the entire sport, uh, what you just mentioned, no commissioner, no players union, percentage of prize money significantly less than the other pro sports, still hard to make a living at 100 in the world. Come on. Uh, the 250s out there are losing money or breaking even. Um, in the U.S., tournaments are dwindling. You know, the days when I played, I played San Jose and Memphis every year in February. San Jose always had Agassi or Sampras and then Roddick. Memphis, it was like, I think I've, we, maybe we've talked about this before, but when I played that, I lost to Tommy Haas twice there, once in three, once in four, four and four. I lost to Todd Martin there, like six and six. I mean, Todd Martin would have been like the third or fourth draw on the card at, at Memphis. You had a packed house, you had Agassi, you had Roddick. And now these tournaments don't even exist. They've been sold. They've moved to, they've moved to the New York Open where they get 23 people per match at that tournament. Yep. American tennis is dying and it's symbolic at the pro level. Uh, college teams are going away. Junior tournament draws are smaller. Uh, this wake-up call, this is, what this is going to do is really accelerate uh, possibly, I don't want to say demise, that might be too strong a word, but the, the significant challenges that our sport has, has, I would not be surprised if certain tournaments go away. Maybe the schedule is going to be less packed uh, than it is now, and the rich will keep getting richer. The, 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 the tournaments that make more, the money are going to do, keep doing well. And the pros that are making the money are going to keep doing well. But I think uh, just like our economy, which is going to go or is going, yep. uh, I think you're going to see the same thing with tennis. And I've said this for a couple of years now. You know, I'm, I've got an online website. I've got, a, I've got an app where people can use the content. You know, I've always been trying to think of ways to innovate. 
And if tennis doesn't innovate at every level from grassroots to junior to college to pro, uh, this sport is, is not going to be around in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the way that it is, has been the, the last 50 years. So, hmm, I'm wondering where, where, where I go there. So I guess, uh, is this an opportunity, right? So we, the, the game is done. And by the way, Christopher Clary of the New York Times has done reporting this week that confirms exactly what you're saying, that a lot of tournaments are in awful shape financially, that they cannot afford to skip a year, and that they're going to need to basically sell unless they get some kind of bailout or, or stimulus package. I don't think Trump's, Trump's going to bail out tennis. No, I don't think so either. But from some from some entity, right? Maybe maybe the Grand Slams would bail out. Hmm. Who knows, right. right? But unless there's some kind of bailout, there are 250 tournaments that are going to have to sell their right to have the tournament, and that's kind of how this works. Uh, where that's maybe where China will come in and gobble it up. Maybe. But essentially, that's where that's where the 250s have wealth, not money. Wealth. Wealth means it's an ownership, not actual cash. Um, the right to have a tournament is actually worth millions of dollars, but they're not making millions of dollars. So you could see a lot of tournaments move. That was reported in the New York Times this week. The French Open and what they did unilaterally <laughs> announcing that they are going to hold their tournament in September without consulting any of other tennis's governing bodies was yet another example in these unprecedented times of how disjointed tennis's political structure is because the aftermath of that has been essentially the other governing bodies saying, okay, well, we're not going to, we're not going to count your rankings points if you're not going to play nice. So you have this petty fight now within tennis based on the French open announcing separate dates. What kind of opportunity is this though? As everything comes to a halt, for tennis to perhaps reorganize politically. Would you like to see that? Oh, absolutely. I, I've, I was having this conversation with my girlfriend the other day. I mean, this, this is an opportunity to create better leadership in the sport. I don't know where that leadership comes from, but in order for tennis to survive and thrive, you have to look at it like, I, I always look at through a lens of either business or marketing. In the 2008 recession, the financial crisis, some of the most innovative companies were developed. You know, Uber, WhatsApp, uh, Venmo, they were all started during that crisis. So there's an opportunity for companies, businesses, sports to innovate in a way that could actually allow them to thrive 10 years from now. So far, I haven't seen any indication other than Larry Ellison at Indian Wells. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. Larry Ellison at Indian Wells, the Labor Cup, those are, those are innovative ways that people are getting excited again. And I think we need more of that and we need leadership like that. So maybe it's going to come from Fed. Maybe it's going to come from Djokovic or, or uh, Tony Gottschick, uh, Federer's agent. Maybe it'll come from Larry Ellison, but we need leadership uh, to reorganize, as you've suggested, in order to be more relevant again and in the future. If, if you've ever been in any kind of organization where there are too many cooks in the kitchen and no one's in charge, it doesn't operate well. It's just not, it's not an easy way to operate. So 
however, however this can be done, and I don't have fully thought out ideas exactly, but there needs to be someone who takes charge and leads the way in, in all aspects of tennis. And right now it is a fragmented, you get a slice of the pie, you get a slice of the pie, but we're trying to manage one pie. It, nothing works well like that. Right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if they could get, I don't know, a commissioner of, of what, I mean, we have CEOs or commissioners of the ATP and the WTA, right? So are you suggesting that we have uh, one person oversee the entire operation? Yeah, I think, I think that would be difficult because of the different entities. It's, it's, it's like eight companies at work. You can't just put tennis, all those companies under one umbrella. I don't, I don't know how you could do that. Yeah, well, I mean, you would have to somehow, um, there would need to be a larger entity above the Grand Slams, above the ATP, the WTA, and the ITF. God, and, uh, God holding a tennis racket. Yeah, like, well, look, it, it sounds very far away in tennis, but every other sport has this, with the exception of if you look at some of the individual sports like, uh, like the UFC, you actually have different promotions. We definitely don't want that, right? Because we want all the players, all the best players in the world to be playing against each other. Not, you know, Djokovic is in that promotion and Federer is in that promotion. So they can't play, uh, you know, just, and again, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I'm not fully thought out here, but if someone were in charge things would operate a lot smoother and decisions could be, can be made because as we saw here, the French open, if they ask for permission, don't get me wrong. If they said, can we change our dates? The ATP would have said, no, you can't. The USTA would have said, no, you can't because they have a stake in labor club. So the French open has to do this unilaterally and make this decision um, without asking anyone's permission. Now they're in trouble anyway, but the way you fix this is you have one overarching body that can oversee the whole thing. But yeah, I, I mean, I think the issue you have, and I was just thinking about other sports, you know, the NBA, there's, there's European basketball leagues. No, no one person or body is overseeing European and NBA. It's just the NBA has their commissioner. So the problem we have is we have four grand slams that fall outside of the ATP when you're, when you're looking at the men's side. So I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how you can do that because to your point, the grand slams want their piece of the pie. The ATP wants their piece of the pie. So somehow they're going to have to come to some sort of agreement where one person or one group is a commissioner is overseeing the four slams um, that kind of fall within the ATP. And then you have the WTA the same concept, right? It's, it's a very. Maybe someone, maybe someone will just buy everything. It's dysfunctional for sure. <laughs> but again, like if you look at a guy like Larry Ellison, who has run company and run this company or been the chairman for years, obviously very forward thinking, look what he's done with Indian Wells. You need a guy like that, that almost comes like a Bill Gates, a guy that comes from out that has billions of dollars comes from outside of the sport and innovates and says, guys, this is how we're going to do it. Okay. We've run companies before. 
This is how we're going to do it. And I don't know if they'll, in the little fiefdoms, people are going to allow someone like a Bill Gates or Larry Ellison to come in and say, this is what we're going to do, everybody. I'm running the show. It's hard. Uh, I, don't, I don't think much is going to change right now. And I think uh, nothing, nothing will change until the big guns are maybe get in financial trouble. Um, so we'll see what when, happens. When they're making so much money. I mean, how much do they really need to change? No, you know, there's no incentive. I, I don't know. Like, right. Now, I the mean, 250s, the, the ATP and the WTA, maybe they will innovate. But the Grand Slams will certainly not be a part of that based on how successful they are. Uh, let's change gears. I think right now a lot of people are watching old tennis matches, and uh, I know I'm doing that on, on my channel, analyzing old tennis matches. And, of course, the game has changed very much. It doesn't look like it used to look. Uh, last week I did the 1980 Wimbledon final uh, between Borg and McEnroe and talked about how in serve and volley tennis, and even though Borg was a baseliner, he was serve volleying on grass, um, in serve and volley tennis, the low return was such a key to get it at the server's feet. And my conclusion from just studying that match is that it's too easy with modern racket and string technology uh, to get the ball down low with the heavy topspin for serve and volley to be consistently effective. And of course, pace on the ball counts and there's other factors uh, at play. But as someone who serve and volleyed a ton, big part of your game, I'm curious uh, to know why do you think serve and volley was phased out with modern technology? So just to, I want to correct something there with the serve and volley a ton. I, I wouldn't say it was a ton and I'm going to explain why. I definitely had the serve and volley in my arsenal I'm going to go through a couple of scenarios where it worked and where it didn't work. Okay. Um, my, my belief is that it's actually more about the skill set of being able to volley that is keeping people from doing it more than the rackets uh, or the string. Yes, that's, that's definitely helping. But I look at Patrick Rafter in my era and I played against him in 97. And yes, you, you mentioned the game has changed. At the same time, I would say, has it? Because when this guy was serving, you know, 115, 150 miles an hour, 112 miles an hour, and the ball is kicking up like a mofo. I mean, it's, and he's coming in and he can handle low volleys like they're going out of style. That type of pressure uh, actually makes you return worse or go for more. And I think because guys don't know how to do what Rafter could do, then we just assume that you can't serve in volley in today's day and age. I believe it's a skill set issue. For me, I wasn't a great volleyer. So that's why I didn't serve in volley more. I had to serve in volley because I didn't want the points to last long, you know, last longer. But when I served in volleyed, I couldn't volley like Rafter. If I could volley like Rafter, I'd be coming in like crazy. So, you know, the guys before him, Pat Cash, Edberg, I don't think they served quite as big as Rafter or as big as Sampras um, or maybe as heavy. Mm -hmm. So I think these guys would have been able to I, – I can't think of one guy in the tour that can volley as well as Sampras 
or rafter right now. So if somebody could, then I'd say you got to get in more because even Federer is a very skilled volleyer. But I've said this for years. He, I believe he's an undisciplined volleyer. It's not, he volleys well because of his like talent and come forward, but it's not like he sits 40 minutes a day working on his first volley, like a rafter word or like an Edberg word. If he did, I think he could serve and volley like crazy. Another point I want to make is that the times I served and volleyed more, Gil, were on the slower courts. I served and volleyed better on slower courts because I was playing the South Americans and the Spaniards that were 20 feet back. And I'd hit a kicker and come in and then hit a short volley to end the point. They were standing back at the fence. If I would have stayed back, now I've neutralized that. So if someone like a rafter could come in on Nadal, playing 20 feet back, I'd be really curious of that type of a matchup. So I think it's more skill set than anything else. Right. I mean, there was a point where serve volley intersected with pretty much modern racket technology. If you look at like the Sampras-Agassi rivalry, Agassi got tons of topspin, had insanely good passing shots, was an all-time great returner. But Sampras... You're right. There's no volleyer on the tour right now like Sampras. Sampras could make difficult volleys time and time again. So that, you know, I, I do see where you're coming from. And part of the reason I was, that also got me thinking about this is because I had to decide who the best volleyer on tour was. Couldn't use Federer because uh, I was making a video uh, trying to create the greatest tennis player of all time but just using one player. So Federer, I wanted his footwork. Um, so it left me with a couple of other options. And you think maybe like I went with Feliciano Lopez. For so, the certain volley. For the volley. For the as volley. the best volleyer on tour. Yeah. Uh, how, I mean, is this, a, this is probably a silly question, but I mean, yeah. is, is he in the same league as, I, I as the guys so. in the 90s? Yeah, I don't think he's in the same league as Edward or they're, they're on they're on the mountaintop. They're on the Mount Rushmore of serve and volley for me. And uh, the the dedication and the time spent on that craft because they knew that was their only way to win. Now the guys can rally, and that's how they play the game. So, um, gosh, I would have just loved to see a 24 year old or 25 year old Patrick Rafter in today's era wrecking havoc on these guys that are not used to it you know the block chip that's low the sneaking in that i just think would have been a, a nightmare for people uh the only ones that would have beat rafter would be the big three i think consistently and even them they're or they're afraid to play john isner i know john has the serve but once you get a serve back he's not coming in and knocking off volleys so Gosh, I really think that we are missing a skill set. And, and with, the, yeah. with, the, with the technology, if you're seven years old, eight years old, and you get that Babylon in your hand, or you get that Luxalon or the string, and you're being coached by someone that doesn't understand how to teach the volley, guess what you're going to do for the next 10 years? You're going to learn how to rip inside out forehands. So if there was a coach out there like a Tony Roach, or whoever helped Rafter said, listen, we're just going to volley 40 minutes every day for the next 10 years. We're going to do our ground strokes. This is what we're going to do. You would have that guy show up, but we just don't have that in our culture and environment anymore. So we're, we're probably never going to know. 
No, uh, I certainly believe volleys are being trained less and less. Jeff, my coach was like, you better know how to hit a forehand and a backhand before we're volleying. We're not volleying until you can trade a hundred balls cross court without missing. Uh, you know, he was, he kind of had a Spanish tennis philosophy or not kind of, he did. And, uh, and that was, that was his view. So I, I absolutely believe that volleys are being trained less and less. I do think that it's easier to finish points now without the volley. So there's less necessity for it. It might be a little bit safer to stay back. Uh, what's your philosophy though on how people should split their training? Let's end on this. I mean, if you're going to give a percentage, if you take a young player and you get a blank slate, how much time are you dedicating to volleys versus ground strokes? So this is the age old question. It goes back to Craig O'Shaughnessy's work. He's been working with the ATP tour for five, six, seven years now. Uh, Sterling Strother has got the art of winning program. They're very big on the first four shots. So they know that 70% of all points end before the serve, the return and the first ball after, but our tennis, this is about innovation. Again, our tennis culture has hit cross courts for, you know, hours and hours before you do anything else. I actually believe we should be training the opposite. And the proof that I have is those two guys have studied the data but I also have played the game for 40 years and have tinkered with all of this. I have a player that I mentioned earlier that's training college player, uh, just graduating, but she's going to get a fifth year. And invariably she's spent a lot of time in college working on her cross courts for a long time. But when she was 10 years old, I was training her to play down the line and take balls out of the air. And that was when she was playing her best tennis. When she was training a style that was straightforward I basically, I always tell my players, listen, if you can hit a couple forehands cross court and a couple four backhands cross court, and you're not missing that shot, we're going to work on your approach shot, your volleys, and playing down the line, being able to change direction. If you look at all the best players in the world, they can change everyone else better can down the line on a win. Okovic, Nadal, down the line forehand. So <clears throat> I would... I would definitely skew it more towards as long as they have good technique off the ground, which I think you can get. I mean, if you started a player at seven and you knew what you were doing by 10 years old, their technique's going to be really, really good. If you know what you're doing, then you start to spend, well, you even do it earlier, but you spend a lot of time moving forward because <clears throat> what I find happens is that players get good playing cross court, but they never learn how to end or they never learn how to transition or they never learn how to change direction. And that skill should be developed for years and years and years until it's automatic. So I'm definitely more of the approach of uh, focusing more on the transition game early. Martina Hingis, number one in the world at age 16, watched her train at Saddlebrook. She spent 40 minutes every day at the net and at no, no man's land doing and, uh, and, and working on her volleys and her approach shots before she even hit a ground stroke. And she was number one in the world at age 16. I think her mom, Melanie Molitor, do some. But we are so indoctrinated to do the cross-court thing, and it's way overrated. Yeah, I did a lot of those. I was pretty bad at ending points. Uh, I think you could have maybe... And now you're a commentator. <laughs> You, I mean, you know, my, my knees would have really appreciated your coaching style, I think. I think maybe I'd be a little bit less worn down here. 
<laughs> I, I can tell you too, a quick antidote. Again, the girl that I'm helping in, in a, from afar now, but every summer that she's come home, she's been in a slump pretty much after college tennis. And all we do is what I just described. And, and within two weeks, she's like, I'm having more fun and playing better than I've ever played. And even right now, I'm telling her, I'm like, have your mom just feed you like approach shots and swinging volleys. And her mom texts me the other day. She's like, it's crazy how well she's playing because she already has the technique. She already can rip cross court. She doesn't need to train for hours. It's, it's in her DNA. So I, I really think the best players in the world actually understand this and are doing this. You just don't hear it really. It's not talked about that much. All right. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. Nice to get away and, uh, get a little bit, uh, of a distraction from the regular news cycle of the, uh, all the pandemic stuff. So thanks for coming on. Jeff. What's your prediction? Thanks. When, I, I love doing it. Thanks. When are we going to, when are we going to play again? When is pro tennis going to come back? What's your, what's your prediction? Well, I think uh, my prediction is that it doesn't, unfortunately, just because I think that Do, August, it never comes back. Well, I'm talking about, I'm talking about this year. I think, Oh, I think the question is, um, first of all, everyone's timing is different and it literally needs to be on a global scale taken care of before tennis can resume. But uh, also, uh, I think that things are going to get better. Uh, the question is, is, uh, is it going to get worse again? Um, so I'm kind of, I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything that's making me optimistic yet and I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking for something and look, we'll get through this modern medicine, science. It is a miraculous thing. There will be an end, but, uh, and I, and I think the, it's going to get a lot better than it is right now, but good enough to gather in crowds. I don't know. What's your prediction? I'm saying the, I'm saying the year is done and we try to start this thing up in Australia <clears throat> and to your point, I don't know if that involves fans or if it's it, there's no one in the, in the stands and they're playing. I, I don't, I, that part, I don't know, but I think, I think people are, I've been watching this guy he is peak prosperity, Chris Martinson. Um, he's brilliant. He's a PhD researcher and he's been, he's been talking about this pandemic since January that it was coming and he's been on it when, so when all these government officials acting like they're surprised and didn't know, he's like, He's like a hundred dollar Wi-Fi. I was on this thing. And uh, I think people are, he calls them slow adapters. They're, they're not adapting to this new reality. They're kind of in denial. And I think we've got to be realistic about what's, what's ahead and it's going to take time. Yeah, I agree. Bill Gates was also pretty uh, pro prophetic. I, I believe is the word. Yeah, 2015. About. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I this, this obviously probably could be managed better at, at a lot of levels, but uh, it is what it is. We'll, we'll see what happens. We'll keep powering through and, uh, you know, doing the best we can. Anything on the, on the horizon for you? You made shirts. You're wearing a, a nice Tennis Evolution Got polo. The Tennis Evolution shirt. Uh, we're, we're creating programs here. I'm actually going to be releasing. A, I have a flexibility program, so a lot of people want that right now. So, um, I'm just working with, I'm working with a club right now to try to get uh, a 10 week program for them. That's all online and they can't play tennis. So they're going to work on their flexibility, their mobility, their mental game. Uh, so yeah, for me, I've gotten busier 
during this time when people aren't working and they're going stir crazy. I, I don't have enough hours in the day to create the on, online stuff. So um, this is, by the way, this is where the world is moving. So digital content, what you and I are doing here more. And it's just, this is going to accelerate the digital aspect of the world. Uh, so, you know, we have to keep innovating and seeing how we can move the ball forward in, in, in our little, in our little world. Agreed. There's going to be a lot more uh, working from home after this because it's very possible in the age of the internet. Anyway, so uh, I appreciate you taking Thanks, man. That, uh, that precious time out of the day to come on and uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks stay safe. Lot, okay. Thank you. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.